4. Psalm 4 tonight. And uh, Mike, I need your help. If you want a worksheet, just raise your hand. Mike will give you one. Get up here, Mike. This is my insistent pastor, okay? He insists, he insists on having fun with me. So he's going to hand you out a note or two if you want to take notes. That's great. If you don't want to take notes, that's okay too. But uh, a lot of people like to take the sermons home and preach them to their loved ones. So now you have an opportunity to do that. You pray that I do a good job tonight because I'm not used to traveling so many hours and I'm not used to preaching four or five times in one weekend. So, Pastor, I, I preach once a week, that'd be nice. Four or five times is where's this old timer out. I still love it. I'm still having fun. Psalm 4. <clears throat> I don't have a bulletin, so did you put that in the bulletin, Caleb? Getting your happy back? Is that what it says in the bulletin? Getting your happy back for the title? What? Okay, well, that's good. Caleb calls and he says, what's the title of tonight's message? And I knew it was Psalm 4, but I don't remember what the title was. So, But it's basically getting our happy back as we watch the Lord meet our needs, okay? Psalm number 4. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? And we have that word selah, and that's that, that's that Hebrew word that reminds us to meditate on that for a while. Think about that for a while. How long will you turn my glory into shame? Think about that. Verse 3, But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. There we have Selah mentioned again. I don't know if when people in the Old Testament shared these truths, I don't know how long their pause or their time for meditation was, but I do believe it's important when we read a good verse to think about for a while. On our bed, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. Remember that little prayer that your mom and grandma would have you say when you were little kids before you went to bed if you were raised in a different church? In the other churches, they have this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep, probably as a result of somebody reading verse number 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truths of Scripture. Help me tonight to say that which is helpful and beneficial and profitable and biblical, and help me to leave out the stuff that's insignificant. Thank you for the help you give. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> you know, the way that our smile disappears, the title was Getting Your Smile Back. The way that our smile disappears, disappears because of too much worldliness. It often disappears when the bills get too high. Our smile disappears when we're fatigued and we have health problems. Our smile disappears when we have loss and when we have grief. If we pray more and we ask for help, we get our smile back. If we Plead more and confess to God and pray about our enemies, the Lord will help. If we praise more, God's claiming God's promises and thanking for his promises, our 
our smile will return. If we pause more, sila. If we stand in awe and be still and wait on the Lord. If we produce more, more of doing right by trusting in him more. If we plan more to seek his holy countenance. If we party more, now that doesn't sound like a good thing for a Baptist preacher to say, but the idea is that we celebrate. We bring gladness of the heart to our hearts. I sing because I'm happy, the songwriter says. I sing because I'm free, for his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. That should be worth smiling about. And then we have more peace, and we trust God for a restful sleep and for safety. Uh, on your notes there, we have some Roman numerals. Roman numeral one, we're going to talk about our need for salvation. Our need for salvation. You drop down to Roman numeral two, we're going to look at our need of sanctification. If you drop down to Roman numeral three, our need of sacrifice, which is really an Old Testament principle, but for you and I, it's the idea of commitment. You know, you had to sacrifice some gas money and some time to come to church tonight. That's, a, that's the idea there. We go over and above and we sacrifice. Roman number four, we'll look at our need for song, and then we'll end up with our need for spirit. Okay? Salvation, number one. Sanctification, number two. Sacrifice, number three. Our need of song, number four. And our need of security, number five. Rich already told me that this, this morning was really, really good. So I'm under pressure. Okay. But if you're listening and you're hungry, it'll be good. Okay. So you be hungry and let's see what we can learn. <clears throat> First of all, our need for salvation. Do we just know him or do we need him? See that line right below uh, where it says background? Absalom had just run out. He'd run David out of the palace. And so David is he's down in the dumps. And uh, our needs, well, we have special needs when we feel run out. David had been run out. When we feel run down, he was probably run down. And when we feel run over. Ever been there? Or you felt run out? Get out of here. We don't want you here. I was in, uh, in a church in Bemidji, Minnesota one time. I didn't know what was going on, but I had upset one of the deacons. And uh, we met at the pastor's house. The other, other deacon's house, actually. The pastor was there and these deacons. And I really don't know... I made him mad, but I don't know how I made him angry. And, uh, but anyway, he said that, uh, he said, Forsberg, he said, since you've come to town, we're, we're losing our church to some new people. And he said, I would just assume you left. And I was so shocked by his request that I leave, uh, that, that he requested me to run out, that I just kind of smiled and, and I said, well, I, I didn't know you wanted me to leave. I'd be happy to leave. And so I had a hockey game that night at 8 o'clock, and I just left the meeting early. Fortunately, our pastor resolved the issue, and our pastor corrected the man, told him that you've been praying for years for new people to come to church, and now we have a few new people. And you need to be thankful that pastor's here to help us out. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was a principal of Christian school. But uh, I'd never had something like that happen in my whole life. But he said, I would just assume you just left town. Sometimes you feel that. People are trying to run you out of your business, of, of your job, or whatever. And all of us have been run down. When we get run down, we get sick, health issues surface. And occasionally some of us get run over. That's when people just pretend like you're not even there and they fall right over. The That's a pretty painful way to live, and it's a pretty uh, difficult thing. Verse 1, 
Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. David says, I was run out, I was run down, and I have been run over. And so he begs for mercy. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. John Phillips writes in his books on Psalm 4, the need for a number, letter A, a personal salvation. And the personal salvation means that God is really yours, you're really his. And it's not a it's not a flippant thing. It's not a Sunday morning, Wednesday thing. Your salvation experience with the Lord is really personal. And uh, Phillips has a great story here on page 37 of his book that I want to share with you. This is one of those lessons I love to teach in a Sunday school class in the morning when I have more energy and I'm more alert. But listen to this. <coughs> David says that our salvation that we need is a personal one. Um, we can be philosophical enough about matters of belief until we see our own lostness. This is what makes it personal. The story is told of two men at the beach. One was sitting on the sand soaking up the sunshine. The other was in the water. Suddenly the one in the water, wading in what he thought was the shallows, stepped off a hidden ledge into the deep. Help! Help! he cried. I can't swim. The fellow on the bank replied, Neither can I, but I'm not making a fuss about it. The one fellow knew he was lost. The other fellow had no sense of need. It's when we get into deep water that we feel our need of salvation. David wanted a personal relationship with the Savior. Hear me when I call and have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And then also we see not only our salvation needs to be personal, but it needs to be practical. It needs to be complete and it needs to be whole and it needs to be sensible. And it shouldn't be fuzzy. People should know that you're saved. They shouldn't have to guess. They should know by your church attendance. They should know by your giving. They should know by your lack of profanity. They should know by your lack of love to the world. You should know by your behavior. And that's practical that way. Another thing that's right below here, I want to read it and then I can close this book, but uh, <coughs> David wanted his salvation to be practical. He wanted it to be thorough, complete, and beyond question, so much that he would shut the mouths of the enemies of God. That's the way it was with George Mueller of Bristol, England. Now, you old times know old timers know who George Mueller is, but some of you young folks don't. He's one of the Christian uh, great heroes of the faith. Before he was ten years old, I could, are you listening to this? Before he was ten years old, he was an already accomplished thief. Okay, <laughs> I got it. Stop here and quit picking up Micah. The night his mother died, he was wandering the streets more than half drunk after a wild night with his friends. He disgraced himself in one school after another, even in Bible college, training to be a minister of the gospel, he was no better. He was constantly in debt, constantly up to tricks and schemes to supply his lack of funds. Aware that no church was likely to call him to be the pastor in his terrible condition, he tried in vain to reform. Then God saved him. You see, the difference between Martin Luther's brand of reformation and God's biblical plan of transformation is quite different. We, we don't reform ourselves. We trust God and then he works on the inner man and changes it. And a lot of people try to work their way into heaven by self-reformation. Mueller tried that and it didn't work. God saved him. God transformed him. And God gave him a ministry. Mr. Mueller determined to establish a group of orphan houses and to do so in a way 
which would strike dumb the voices of atheism in England. He would keep all his financial needs a secret between himself and God alone. He said, if I, a poor man, can get means to carry out an orphanage, it would demonstrate that God is faithful and he still hears prayer. He succeeded. When he died, as a very old man, England went into mourning. Businesses were closed, and employees from companies all over the city lined the streets to witness the passing of one of the greatest men the city had ever known. On churches and cathedrals, flags flew at half-mast, and the bells were rung with muffled heels. The England, the Bristol Times said, Mr. Mueller was raised up to show us that at the age, that the age of miracles is not past. Professor Randall Short, one of England's famous surgeons of the next generation, said, My father used to say that during the days of George Mueller, agnosticism did not dare to raise its head in England. And that's what the, that's what the Old Testament Saint David wanted. He wanted a practical salvation that would shut the mouth of his enemies. That is the kind of salvation God still offers. A salvation that makes drunken men sober. A salvation that makes crooked men straight. A salvation that makes evil women pure. That's the first theme of this psalm. Salvation. And it's always followed by sanctification, which is our second Roman numeral. Okay? Our need, first of all, for salvation. And then we all have a need for sanctification. That's our next basic need. When we are sanctified, we begin loving the things that we once loathed, and we loathe the things we once loved. When I got saved, one of the first little courses I learned was those things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. That's the great change that the Lord puts in our heart and life. You say, well, did you, what, did, what did you do? Well, the drinking went out the window, and cursing went out the window, and uh, uh, arguing and screaming with the wife went out the window, and I mean, still have a disagreement, but if it's a cakewalk, God brings about great change, and he does that through the process of sanctification. Sanctification involves two things. It involves letter A, a personal godliness. A personal godliness. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart for sanctification. He has set apart him that is godly for himself. You know, if you're sanctified, you're special to the Lord. And the Lord has you set apart for himself. The Lord will hear. Your prayers won't bounce off the ceiling. If you live a sanctified life, your prayers will get to the throne of grace. And God will hear when you call on to him. David knew that, and that's what he wanted. He wanted a personal godliness that others could see and others could witness. I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. I'm still working on it. God's not finished with me yet. But I would like to live in such a way that when I die, people will say, he's a godly man. What an honor that would be to have that said at my funeral. Godliness. Secondly, I like the little quote there after godliness. Dirt doesn't bother us before we're saved, but it ought to bother us after we're saved. A little girl one time, she was like five years old, six years old. She came before the deacons and she wanted to be baptized. And the deacons asked her, they said, well, are you sure you're saved? And she said, she said sure, I'm saved. And uh, they said, did you, did you sin a lot before you were saved? And of course, five-year-old, you know, said, sure, I sinned a lot. And, and then they said, do you still sin? And the little girl says, yes, I do. 
And so the deacon said, well, why should we baptize you? I mean, if you sinned before and then you got saved and you still sin, what's going on? And she said, well, before I was saved, I ran to sin because I loved it. And I longed for it. After I got saved, I run away from it. But sometimes it catches me. Isn't that true of all of us? We try desperately hard to reform ourselves. We run from sin and then the Lord has to remind us. He has to chasten us. He has to bring us back. We're all sinners. And we need to realize that in the sanctification process, it takes years to be fully sanctified. It takes years and months and much study and much prayer, but that's the desire of God's heart. Personal godliness comes through sanctification. And personal goodness, letter B, comes through sanctification. Look at verse number 4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Personal Goodness. We have a new quality. God is awesome. And we're presented with a new quietness. Because he's awesome, we need to listen to him. With both ears and our heart. So when he tells us to do something or not do something, we will follow his bidding. He is, is he awesome to you? You know, it's so easy to go to a funeral and sing how great thou art and sing it in vain. Sing it with an empty. But it's also very refreshing and very enlightening to go to a funeral and saying how great thou art. Feel as if the congregation really means it. And uh, that's what God should be to us. He's, he's an awesome God. And sometimes we bring him down to a human level. Sometimes we forget that he's great and we forget that he's mighty and we forget that he's merciful. And so we don't, we don't revere him like we should. He's an awesome God. Even after all the tornadoes, he's still an awesome God. I'm sure many of those people down there in the private Kentucky and Tennessee, I, I'm sure they're just looking at all their belongings and shaking their head, but if you listen to their the newscaster interview them, so many of them are saying, we're fortunate, our family is safe, we're fortunate, it could be a lot worse. Those are people that have a good focus, and they understand the goodness of God, even in tragedies, and, and even in loss. Thirdly, we have a need for sacrifice. First of all, a need for salvation that's personal and practical. Then a need for sanctification that reveals godliness and goodness in our life. And then thirdly, our need for sacrifice. Look at verse number 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now the Old Testament had three kinds of offerings. They had three kinds of sweet savor for the righteous saints. Okay, These are Old Testament offerings. First of all, letter A, there was the burnt offering. Pictured in the New Testament as Christ's passion. So the question that befalls us is, do we live a crucified life? Are we willing to make that offering to the Lord with our lives as a burnt offering of the Old Testament and reveal that the Lord was a passionate Lord? Do we, New Testament believers, love our enemies? I had a debate with somebody a while back, and I said, you know, if you don't learn to love your enemies, how can you live for Christ? That's the one significant difference between our faith and that of all the religions in the world. We are the only religion in the world that is commanded to love your enemies. And you don't have to love what they do. If they're doing wrong, they got to get that fixed. But they need our help. And so we love them towards Jesus. And then we leave them with the Lord and hope that the Lord converts their hearts. So one of the offerings that we can offer as New Testament believers is an offering of passion. How much do you love others? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. How much do you love others? That's a burnt offering. 
pictured in the New Testament as the passion of Christ. Secondly, we have a meal offering. David not only offered burnt offerings, but he offered meal offerings on occasion. The meal offering is a New Testament picture, New Testament picture of Christ's perfection. Now, we all know that we can't be perfect, but we can work on it. The Bible says in the New Testament, be ye perfect. So we work on it. And sometimes we slip and fall, and we get back up on our feet, and we try a little harder. We have more grace and mercy, and we work on that perfection. We should have a life that others witness about us that reveals that we're trying to live perfectly, not for our ego, but for God's glory. And so we strive to do this bidding. The meal offering is a picture of Christ's perfection. Do we live a corresponding life? His was, in him was no sin. He lived a perfect life. Uh, I work at that. And, uh, my wife will tell you I haven't succeeded yet. And, uh, I'm working on it. I hope I do better next year than I'm doing this year. I hope I give more next year than I gave this year. I hope I read my Bible more next year than I did this year. I hope I pray more next year than I do this year. I'm working on it. That's how we present offerings to the Lord. And then the third kind of an offering mentioned in the Old Testament was a peace offering. David was willing to offer burnt offerings, he was willing to offer meal offerings, and he was willing to make a peace offering. That is a picture of Christ's presence. Do we have a communing life, similar to the life Jesus the Son had with God the Father? Jesus, on many, many occasions, he's, he left the disciples and he went off on his own life. So he could commune privately with his Father. Do you have times when you just want to leave the crowd, leave the newspaper, leave your cell phone, just so you can commune with the Lord and talk to him. David wanted that. And uh, as New Testament believers, we should want that. We should crave his presence. We should commune with him often. Not only on our bed, as we go to bed, now I lay me down to sleep, but in the morning when we wake up. Lord, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know what you're going to accomplish through my life. i got to go to the post office. i got to go to the bank. i got to go to the grocery store take Lynn to Starbucks, I have my list of chores, but I also say, Lord, if you need to interrupt that list, if you need me to witness to somebody to be kind or to help somebody or to share a track, please use me in some way, shape, or form. And you know, if you pray that way, God will God will use you. But if you just spend all day just working your, your chore list, then, then the Lord will use somebody else. So uh, commune with him regularly. Offer burnt offerings, passion to everybody. Meal offering, offer a life that corresponds with the perfection of Christ, and then have a peace offering that pictures Christ's presence. Roman numeral four. First, we had a salvation, our need for salvation, our need for sanctification. Roman numeral three, our need for sacrifice or commitment, and then Roman numeral four, our need for a song, our need of a song. What kind of song characterizes your life? One time when we did prime timers, the question was, "What's your favorite song and why?" And it was interesting to listen to the people in the group tell us their favorite song and how it had become special to them. What's your favorite song? I mean, we all should have one in our heart. What kind of song characterizes your life? Look at verse 6. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. You know, uh, it's always nice as a parent when you look out the window and your kids are little and they're getting along. And that makes your countenance kind of glow. Oh, look at those kids. They're perfect. Look at the way they behave. But at the same time, it's very discouraging when you look out the front of the window and they're tearing each other's hair out. They're arguing. 
that is so detrimental to our countenance when we see our kids behave that way. And as God looks down from heaven, it's no different for church folks. He sees us down. He, he sees us down here fighting and squabbling, and God says, oh, "When will they ever learn?" But if He sees us getting along, singing, singing praises, and sharing testimonies, and trying to win others, pleases Him. I believe that with all my heart. So we have to have a song that characterizes our life. Letter A: The tragedy of a joyless life. <coughs> a joyless life is one that hears, but he doesn't do anything. A real life is somebody who hears, and then he does things, and he knows he's doing it for the glory of God, so he begins to sing. He begins singing. Okay? That is the way out of distress. That is the way out of afflictions. To sing your way out. I've said it before, I'll say it again, but I think every Christian ought to have a songbook or two in their house. And when you get the blues, and you feel terrible, just get the songbook out. Look up, does Jesus care? I know he cares. Sing that through a few times. Uh, singing the love of God a few, through a few times. And you will be amazed how a song can change the countenance of your heart, eventually the countenance of your face. And uh, if you want to have a tragic life, just skip singing. Don't sing at all. You know, I was saved in a different, I was saved when I was in a different church. And I don't know if you realize this, but one of the main reasons I'm a Baptist today is because of the singing in the Baptist church. Because the church I came out of, it, the singing was so stoic and so why? I mean, the, the organ and the piano were loud, but you couldn't hear people. There was no enthusiasm. There was no real joy. There was no sense of God's power in their voice. And when I started going to that, I told my wife, I said, these people love to sing. That's a good testimony. And when you get around people who don't love to sing, I, I would like somebody to do a do a Google search. Here you go. Here you go, you computer cell phone fan. I mean, it would be interesting to do a Google search and find out the life expectancy of musicians. Now, not rock musicians, because we know that rock musicians die young. There's history to prove that. The rock and rollers, they generally die of a heart attack before they're 40 years old. But it would be interesting to do, who's the singer for uh, Billy Graham? George Beverly Shea. He died at what age? 101. He had a song on his heart all the time. So, Micah, if you want to live to be 100, start singing, okay? Keep singing. And uh, have a song in your heart, and I believe it pleases the Lord. You know, most of my singing is done with just me and the Lord. I'm in the car, I'm singing by myself. Or I'm, I'm out walking and I'm singing by myself. It's just me and him. He don't care if I can't hit the notes. He don't care if my voice is growly. He don't care if I'm off tune. He just loves to hear me sing. And you know what's interesting? If you listen real close, you can kind of hear him sing along with you. That's when it really gets good. Okay? Keep a song in your heart because it's tragic if you don't have a song in your heart. And then let it be the triumph. A joy-filled life. Look at verse 7. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. And we know that David loved music because he was a heart player and he played for the king and he, he just loved music. I can see him watching over the sheep and doing his various chores out in the field. I can just see him skipping and jumping and singing and practicing his slingshot. That's the way David was. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. David's talking about the joy of the Lord that comes to him and the and the triumph that comes with a joy-filled life. David, remember at the beginning of this, he had been run out, he had been run down, he had been run over. He had lost all his goods. This is this is uh, letter B under Roman number 4. He had lost all his goods, but he still had God. And praise the Lord for those people in the tri-state area that have lost so much, but they're able to say, praise God, we still have the Lord. 
there was one church service where they had a bunch of people had a church service and the building was totally flattened behind them, but they had a church service anyway. Yeah, that was refreshing to see that they still trusted God even in the storm. And then finally, our need for security. Our need for security. We need to be saved. We ought to be working on sanctification. We should have some personal sacrifices, some personal commitments that we make on a daily basis. We should always have a song in our heart. But we like it when we have a little security. Look at verse 8. David says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. I don't know if he was in a cave and hiding at this particular time. I didn't study the homework on that. But uh, he said, it doesn't matter if I've lost everything. Uh, down the bottom there, even though David had lost his wealth, he had lost his war machine, that means his army was no longer his to control. He did have some soldiers that stuck with him, but for the most part, it's like he lost the army and the navy and the marine corps all at once, and he had this little band of, of soldiers that was going to stick by him. But he lost the biggest part of his war machine, and he lost the wisdom of his chief counselors. But yet he could still enjoy a peaceful night's sleep. Perfect peace he could have. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. You know, one of the biggest needs of a married woman is security safe. And you know that she can't sleep very well if she's insecure and in fear of her life. But the husband comes along, marries her, and his job is to provide for her safety and security. And that's the Lord's job for us. He keeps us safe. He keeps us secure. Great peace have they which love thy law. The Bible says, Isaiah, I think I made a note there, Isaiah 26, 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusted thee. We can have a peace that passes all understanding. We can fall asleep in the middle of a storm. We don't want to act like we don't care, but we should act like we've given our cares to the Lord. We've given our burdens to the Lord. And therefore, we can have some security. We can feel safe, and we can sleep at night. Not laying up all night, wondering, wringing our hands, wondering how God's going to fix it. You ever pray and say, Lord, I think this problem is so big that you can't solve it. And God's up there like, yeah, right. I mean, I can make the earth, and I can create that. I can calm the waves, and I can, I can do all kinds of miracles. If you're concerned that I can't handle your problem, just give it to me. And as we turn it over to the Lord, he gives us peace, and he gives us security, and he gives us safety. There's a song in the hymn book. I won't take the time to, to read it, but the song is, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. And if we follow the Lord, he will give us that salvation plan, and he'll give it to us clearly so we can trust him. He will help us in the sanctification efforts that we put forth to try to lead a better life and a cleaner life for God's glory. He will show us our need for commitment and sacrifice. He will put a song on our lips and in our heart. And he will give us that security and safety that we're all looking for. Okay? And that's a challenge tonight. Let's stand and have a word. Father, we thank you for your word.